How I love your word, how it lights my path, how it guides my way. And as they go, let's turn to the scripture for this morning. It's from Acts chapter 22. I'm reading from verse 22 to the end of the chapter. Up to this point, they listened to him. But then they shouted, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And while they were shouted, throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the tribune directed, uh, d- directed that, um, that he thought uh, to be brought into the barracks and ordered him to be examined by flogging to find out the reason for this outcry against him. But when they tied him up with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who's uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. The tribune came and asked Paul, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, Yes. The tribune answered, It cost me a large sum of money to get my citizenship. Paul said, but I was born a citizen. Immediately, those who were about to examine him drew back from him. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Since he wanted to find out what Paul was being accused of by the Jews, the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests in the entire council to meet. He brought Paul down and had him stand before them. Debbie's going to come and share the word with us. Let's pray for her. Lord, we pray that you would release your word among us this morning and speak to us through your word. Come and minister us, minister to us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. We long to hear from you and draw close to us, Lord, the God of the promise, the God of restoration, the God of healing, the God of goodness, the God of mercy that we may hear your voice and that we may be changed more and more into your likeness. Bless Debbie too, we pray, and be with her as she speaks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you all, see all your lovely faces. Um, We were just saying we should have welcomed earlier um, Marcus and Becky Ackerman and the lovely Ackerman family who are just visiting us here in Forest Hill this morning. But I just saw your face, Marcus, and you looked so encouraging. I thought I must return the favour and welcome you. There's Becky there. Welcome. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, wow, you got a clap as well. Yes. (laughs) So our passage this morning, it's such an adventure following Jesus, isn't it? Is that the right word? I don't know because it sounds a bit too trivial perhaps. But for Paul and uh, his commitment to Jesus and walking with Jesus day by day in his lives, it took him through some incredible ups and downs, didn't it? (laughs) And here he's in an amazingly tense and fraught and pressured kind of spot where there are riots erupting around him. And over the last few weeks, we've kind of been leading up to this point in the story. And here he is kind of rescued by the Romans from a situation that, again, is about to turn nasty. 
And I was just thinking, when we're following Jesus, maybe we're not always following him into riots, <laughs> um, but pressure comes on at different times, doesn't it? And we feel the intensity of the pressure to just kind of give up and go and do something else. Do you think Paul ever felt like that? I reckon that there were some days when he woke up and he thought, you know what, I don't really want to stand up in front of a hostile crowd today. I haven't got it in me. I think I'd like to go and make tents with my friends again for a while or whatever it might be. And maybe sometimes we get to those points in our walk and our journey with Jesus because we feel the pressure coming back at us when we're trying to forge out and move in the direction that God has given us. We feel the pressure coming back. It makes us want to back off. But our encouragement from Paul is that the Lord is so faithful. He does deliver us out of those pressured times. Maybe that's a word for someone here who feels a bit like giving up. The Lord will deliver us from the pressured times. They do come, but he will deliver us just like he did for Paul here. And I've kind of called what I want to share this morning with us. I've called it purpose and privilege. Purpose and privilege is our title for this morning because here we have a story of Paul pressing on with the purpose and the calling that he feels from God um, in his life against an explosive kind of backdrop in his day of a society that is wrestling in all kinds of different ways with issues of race. And issues of privilege, they're coming out in this passage, two very sensitive and difficult themes that kind of emerge as we read this story. And they're so relevant to us, aren't they, in our day today, in our society, in the narrative that is often being explored around across the world today through the media, but also in people's conversations with one another these issues, sensitive issues of race and uh, racial conflict and privilege and how that brings itself to bear um, on our lives around us today. And I hope that you'll hear my heart um, as I share a little bit and touch onto those themes just a tiny bit. And we're not exploring them in depth, but I hope you can hear my heart, but also that all of us together, that we can hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us because so often under the surface of these societal issues, there are the works of the enemy in play. And they are seeking all the time to lock us up and to bind us up and to trip us up and divide us from one another and deceive us. But, you know, as I was reading this and thinking about it and pondering on it for this morning, I actually felt so encouraged that those very works of the enemy under the surface of these things, they are also exactly what Jesus shed his blood on the cross to cleanse us from. And therefore, I hope that this morning we're going to find it encouraging, um, if nothing else, that the Bible is just so relevant and it speaks into the issues of today. Um, and the message that it's going to bring us is life-giving and life-changing. So at the beginning of this story, or in fact in the verses before, as we were looking at a little bit last week, there is a racial issue that kicks off the hostility 
that comes against Paul from this crowd or this mob, as some versions like to call it. And it starts back in earlier verses than we read today with that false accusation. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about it in our three tea time? There was a false accusation against Paul that he had brought Greeks into the Jewish temple. Now, this wasn't true. Um, And if Paul had done it, then it would actually have been religiously and culturally a very offensive thing to do for the Jewish community. It would have been very reprehensible. And uh, in a similar way, perhaps, um, in cultures that perhaps we have experience of today, um, it might be something a bit like mistreating the Quran in a strongly Muslim culture. You know, that um, in some places, if you you have to hold your Quran above waist height because it's a sign of disrespect to have it low down and to put it on the floor is an incredibly offensive thing for Muslims in some cultures. Or maybe something like harming a cow in the Hindu culture. It would be the same kind of deeply offensive act. If Paul had been doing that, it would have been reprehensible. It would have been unnecessarily provocative and disrespectful to the Jewish people. And, you know, sometimes we might think that the argument should go from a Christian kind of perspective. Well, yes, but Paul was a Christian now. You know, he wasn't a Jew. And, and so, you know, he's not bound up by all these religious concerns about all the technicalities of the temple. And he's free from all of that. And he's got liberty in Jesus. You know, we might think that that's the message. But actually, that's not the example that Paul shows us as Christians. And what he shows us in these stories is that although we may disagree very fundamentally with the root of some of those religious practices um, from other cultures or from other nations, we might disagree fundamentally with them, but he's showing us we're not going to dig up those roots just by hacking away at the foliage somehow. Because all that does, if we do that as Christians, is vandalize somebody else's garden, isn't it? That's kind of what he's showing us. I was thinking about that image, that example, you know, I was thinking if my neighbor has growing in their garden something like green alkanet, does anybody know what that is? I had to look up the name of it. Yes, Urella is nodding. She probably has to dig it up from the, <laughs> from the community space sometimes. But green alkanet is, in fact, a weed. But it's quite a pretty one. And it's got lots of blue flowers on it. They look a little bit like um, forget-me-nots or something like that. Um, and, you know, so if you're an ignorant gardener like I am, then you might think it looks pretty pretty. And you might just leave it and let it grow. Um, but if your neighbor has got this stuff growing in their garden, then they don't know that it is a weed that is going to seed really, really fast. And, in fact, if you just leave it unchecked that it might grow and take over the whole entire garden and crowd out all the other growth and take up all the nutrients that you want your vegetables to have or your roses or whatever other things that you've got growing there. If at that stage as a neighbor I just climb over the fence with my strimmer and just zim it all down and cut it all up and hack it all off Well, that is vandalism. That's an act of vandalism. And uh, that is exactly how my neighbor is going to receive it, isn't it? And anyway, it's not going to solve the problem because it will all just grow back. It will all just come back again in a couple of days. And all I've done is make my neighbor very angry with me. 
But if I really want to help them be free of this weed so that other things can grow, then I'm going to have to talk to them in a different way, aren't I? I'm going to have to go and, and try to explain the problem and maybe offer to help them to actually get it out at the roots, which is a much longer and trickier and harder kind of job. And the trouble is, when religious offense occurs, it often happens because people are not really motivated to want to help each other get to the truth and get to the roots. Actually, sometimes religious offense occurs because I'm feeling offended or threatened by somebody else's practices and behavior, and I feel the need to kind of assert my own over theirs. And none of that kind of um, interaction is going to get to the root of the problem of what is in the human heart and how it needs addressing so that we treat each other in a right and in a respectful kind of way. And here at the start of our passage, Paul says something very simple. You know, that's the background. The the crowd kicks off because of a a racial or a religious offence between Jews and Greeks. But here at the start of our passage, Paul says something very simple, and it does start to strike right at the root of the problem that the Jews have with him. He's telling his testimony, remember, and in verse 21, just before our passage began, he says, this is what kicks them off again. They've settled down. The crowd have settled down after their first offenses. And they've been listening to Paul's testimony. And then Paul says in verse 21, And God said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And it was that statement that caused a huge demonic reaction to rise up again in the crowd. You know, the first time, it was an offense. It was actually a mistaken accusation against Paul. It was an offense that they felt that stirred them up. This time, something Paul says strikes right at the root of the problem, and they want Paul dead. And we might think to ourselves, why? What was it? What was it that stirred them up so deeply? What were they so very angry about when Paul said, God has sent me to go to the Gentiles? Because up to this point, it seems that that crowd have followed his story fairly peaceably. And they've been on board with Paul and they've been listening and enjoying it. And Paul perhaps has managed a little bit to correct their misunderstanding of him that had led them to taking such offense in the first place. And they've started to settle down and they're hearing what he's got to say. And they're listening to his testimony. Perhaps they're even willing to start to believe that Jesus could be that long-awaited Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for, that God had promised throughout his scriptures. Perhaps they're even willing to open their hearts and their minds to that. Well, he did a lot of amazing miracles. He was an incredible man when he walked on the earth and they're listening to it. Maybe he really is now right back at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Maybe he really does do things like send light from heaven to people on the Damascus road. Maybe he really does call ordinary people like Paul to come and follow him now. But the thought that that would now mean that the Gentiles and the Jews would be coming to God on a completely equal footing now, 
that the Jews would therefore no longer retain any of their special privileges that they had had as a nation up to that point as being the exclusive people that that belonged to God, you know, the special ones that God was working with, the thought that if God is opening his heart now, not just to the Jewish nation and people who then come and, and sort of make their way to be part of it, but actually to anybody, to any Gentile, to any Greek, to anyone from these surrounding cultures, that thought struck right at the whole identity and history of those Jewish people as they listened in a way that they just couldn't handle. And they couldn't face the thought of how things might change if they really let that truth in to their lives. Because I think that right at the heart of every human being, there is the fear of losing what we think is ours. What we think belongs to us. What we feel we have a right to. And that might be things like power and money and possessions and land. Or it might be less tangible things like status, influence, dignity, respect, a sense of self-worth security, freedom. These are all important things to us as human beings. And deep down inside every one of us, there is a fear of losing it, a fear that it can get taken away. And that fear is a powerful force. And here, it caused a riot where people were calling even for Paul's death. Now, of course, we know, don't we, That all the way through the Old Testament, God was trying to help Israel not to see themselves exclusively as God's people. And God, although he had a special purpose for them, he was all the time trying to remind them that this is beyond you. This is not only about you. And he would work with people astoundingly um, and controversially. God would work with people from outside their nation and bring them in. People like Ruth, people like Rahab, people like Naaman, people like uh, the widow that helped Elijah. And then they, they are commended by Jesus as heroes in the story of Israel, even though they didn't come come from within Israel themselves. And he sent prophets like Jonah into Gentile nations. And he was trying to remind Israel all the time through their own prophets like Isaiah, that you are called to be a light to the nations. You are called to open up and share this relationship that you have with me, with others across the world. You are supposed to welcome the nations to the brightness of God's light as he dawns on you. God was all the time trying to remind them of this message, but still their history and their identity got locked in and rooted in to we are the special ones and we have something that no one else has and we don't want anyone to take it away from us. And they saw their privileged state with God as something that was their own and something that they were afraid to lose. And you know, among the many different negative forces that empower racism in all its forms in our world today as well as centuries ago, 
among those negative forces, these two problems of offence and causing offence and fear right at the heart, right at the root, they still exist, don't they? They're real in our world today. With Paul, that hostile reaction started off from a place of offence or perceived offence and then it moved to being generated from a place of fear. And you know, both offence and fear, they need to be dealt with if different kinds of people are ever going to be able to live together in the family of God and be free from the influences of these negative forces, we're going to need to deal at times, aren't we, with offence and with fear in our lives. And the good news is that both of those things are treated in us by the application of the blood of Jesus. Because it's his blood that can forgive and can heal every offence. And it's his blood being shed that gives us fellowship with one another in the light of God, as 1 John chapter 1 tells us. And I know, actually, that there are many of us in this room who have testimonies of how the Lord has done that in our own lives where offences have occurred. And we've allowed the blood of Jesus to come and, and heal it, forgive where damage was caused and heal where wounds have been inflicted. And we need to keep allowing that to happen. And we need to keep in a place where we recognize our need for the blood of Jesus in all of our relationships because it matters. It's important in the world that we live in today, just like it was in Paul's. And you know, Jesus' blood, it can also break the power of fear that is right in the root of us because by Jesus' death, it says in his word in Romans 8 that we are freed from the spirit of fear and we are given the Holy Spirit to make us truly sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. And when we receive the spirit that makes us sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, we realize all that we inherit in him, we realize all the wealth and the beauty and the privileges of heaven that are available to us through Jesus. And you know, the whole world and all of its systems and values, it's built around what we have and what we don't have as human beings. It's built around what we think we should have or what we think others shouldn't have. And those things can be external and material things, um, as I've mentioned, or, or they can be more internal things to do with our identity and our sense of self. But underneath it all, there can be a driving fear of what we might lose or what we might miss out on along the way. And I think it's at that point where privilege comes into the mix and causes more problems. And we see it coming out in this story The idea that some have special rights or special advantages or special opportunities or protections available to them that other people don't have. And that's exactly 
what happens as Paul here discusses Roman citizenship with his Roman captors. In verse 24, it says that Paul was ordered to be scourged or flogged. And you know, this wasn't any kind of ordinary sort of beating or whipping that they might inflict, but it was a particular form of punishment and torture, really, um, which was using what the Romans call in Latin a flagellum, which was a whip which had bone and metal um, attached to the strands. And people frequently, we read in historical records outside of the Bible, but people frequently died um, after this kind of scourging. And even if they didn't die, then they would suffer life-altering injuries. And it was normally the type of punishment that you would reserve for criminals of kind of the worst order, who'd been convicted of the worst crimes. But it was also something that it was okay to do to slaves or to people who were just considered of no worth in the society that they lived in. People who had not yet been convicted even could receive that punishment if they were slaves, if they were unimportant sorts of people. And so Paul looks to the Roman commander like just one of those unimportant kinds of people. And he wants to get an idea of what this rioting is all about. And he thinks Paul must be responsible for it. So he thinks this would be a way to extract the truth from him. But in verse 25, we see that Paul challenges the Romans and he says to them, is it actually legal for you to do this? Because actually I am a Roman citizen. And by the laws of the Romans in in that time, Roman citizens, they carried rights and privileges um, that other people didn't necessarily have. And some of those rights included things like the right to defend themselves in a court, in a properly ordered court, the right to a legal kind of trial with a proper judge if you were accused of a crime, the right to appeal those judgments that came against you. And uh, all of this kind of legal due process was meant to be given before any punishment was given out at all, even anything like just being bound or being whipped in a normal kind of way or tortured and flogged like it's talking about here or given the death penalty. Those things were not meant to happen before they'd gone through that proper due legal process. And so Paul, um, even before Paul gets to this point of being about to be scourged, and it says that they stretched him out and tied his arms out, he was ready, he was right on the point of that moment um, of punishment. He had already, before it had even happened, he'd been denied his Roman citizen rights because Earlier on, it says he'd been bound up by those Romans when they arrested him. They've already violated those Roman citizen rights. So in verse 27, Paul, the commander asks Paul, you know, are you really, is this true? Are you really a Roman citizen? Because if they accidentally punish somebody in that way and don't take them through um, the due process and they are a Roman citizen, then that could be the, the Roman commander's life on the line as well. He could be punished for that. There were strict rules about these things. So he wants to make sure. And uh, it's unlikely that Paul is going to lie um, about something like this um, because the penalty for lying about being a Roman citizen, because it carried so many privileges, again, could be death um, in that time. So he ascertains from Paul, is this true? And Paul's like, yep, 
it's true. And then I think it is so interesting what the Roman commander says back to him in verse 28. He says, I acquired this citizenship. I'm a Roman citizen. I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul says, but for me, I was born a citizen. I was born into it. And you know, just that little exchange for me, doesn't it just speak of issues of privilege in society in so many different ways and from so many different, well, from different angles. You know, it says something about how those with money could make sure that they were treated better than those who didn't have any. It says something about if you don't really look like the sort of person with the means to buy citizenship, you might find yourself, even though you might have the right to it, you might find yourself denied those rights. Paul must have looked a very disheveled sort of character as he stood at the front of this rioting crowd um, and not like the sort of dignified personage that carried Roman citizenship. Perhaps some of us, some people, some commentators think that when the commander says this um, to Paul, that what's, what's in his mind is, well, if somebody like you can get citizenship these days, then the standards really must be dropping, you know? Like when he says that, like, I paid a lot of money for this citizenship. Clearly, you don't have a lot of money, so I don't know how they let you in. You know, that kind of response to him. Maybe that was in there, but that kind of judgment um, about who we are and where we sit in the pecking order of society and the assumptions that we make about one another. And some commentators even suggest um, that... Roman citizenship wasn't something anyway that you could purchase um, in a kind of above board way. It was something you had to bribe for if you wanted to be awarded it. So that when the commander says that, he's kind of indicating, well, you know, I paid a massive bribe to get my citizenship. um, And uh, that's how they awarded it to me. Um, And again, it just speaks, doesn't it, to the corruption and the mess Um, of this sort of system that was riddled throughout the society there, that bribes were exchanged in return for an award. Um, Because generally, Roman citizenship had to be awarded to people for their contributions to Roman society. And usually those kind of contributions were honoured based on wealth or influence or power or status. And then those things got carried on through birthrights. So you were born into a family of Roman citizens and you just continued continued with those privileges as you went along. And it paints a picture, doesn't it, of a society that is just as corrupt and just as unfair as many societies in our world today, where certain rights and privileges are obtained by the accident of birth or by having loads and loads of money in the bank. So we can see there's a lot of crossover with our world and Paul's. But I just want us to think for the last few minutes, how is Paul navigating his way as a follower of Jesus? How is he finding his way through the maze of racism and offense and fear and privilege that kind of marks out the society of his day? How is he as a follower of Jesus, how is he picking his way through this and walking a path that is honoring to Jesus? I think it's really important that we notice that in verse 25, it's only when the scourging is just about to happen to Paul, 
It's only then that he kind of plays his Roman citizen privilege card, if you like, if you want to call it that. You know, he could have done it earlier. That's the point I was making. He was bound by the Romans earlier. At that moment, he could have said, hang on a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. You shouldn't treat me like this. But he doesn't do it there. He waits. He waits probably because he knows at that point, when the flogging is about to begin, he might not survive that experience. This could be the end. He knows that. He's seen other people, I expect, punished in that way. He knows what happens And also in his heart, he knows strongly that God has told him in the spirit, it says in chapter 19 of Acts, that he has got to go to Rome to preach the gospel in Rome. That is part of his journey. That's part of his destiny. And God wants him to end up there. And that's confirmed again in chapter 23 in the next chapter we'll read next week. You know, as an aside, it's interesting, isn't it, for Paul, that he doesn't just therefore say to himself, well, God's told me what I've got to do and what, I'm, what is going to happen. I'm going to go to Rome. So I'll just kind of passively sit back and kind of wait for him to do it and work it all out in his purposes. It's interesting, isn't it, that he doesn't behave like that. Paul recognizes that God's will in our lives, it gets done on the earth first and foremost in cooperation with us as human beings. That is how God has made it to be. That is how he created this world and the human beings who live on it to be. It's an incredible truth, but he wants to co-regent with us. He wants to work with us to bring in his kingdom. That is God's first desire. And so he cooperates and he looks all the time for us to cooperate with him. That means the choices we make in our lives before God, they really, really matter. They are real ones. When we talk about free will. It's not just a concept or a philosophical idea. It's real. It's true. It matters. We have choices and the more submitted we really are to God's purposes and the more we're saying to him, yes, Lord, I really want to live for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done through my life. The more we do that, the more God is able to work through us as individuals in whatever our lives contain. Maybe we're not street preachers like Paul. Whatever our context is, whatever our day-to-day activity looks like, if we are those who are cooperating with God and saying, yes, Jesus, I want you to do good things through me. Do good things through my choices. Bring your kingdom into the earth. If we do that, then we're going to find more and more of the activity of God and his Holy Spirit flooding out into this world. And Paul's actions here in this moment prompted by the Holy Spirit, they matter in the bigger purposes of what God has got for Paul in getting into Rome so that the message about Jesus can then spread throughout the whole Roman Empire from that point. And you know, Paul did not define himself and live every day according to his privilege, his Roman citizenship privilege, And in fact, that is the whole reason he's in this situation, isn't it? He doesn't look like a Roman citizen. He's not behaving like one generally. He's not rich enough. He's not respectable enough. He's not sensible enough. He's not treated well enough by the people around him. He doesn't even talk in the right language in his everyday life. Remember, he starts this preach um, in the Hebrew dialect to those people, to the ordinary people of his day. That's why the Roman commander is so uncertain about what 
the issue is about why everyone's so angry with Paul. He can't even understand fully what Paul has been saying. And Paul does not live day by day according to all the privileges that his life and the world had afforded him. And I want us to kind of finish just by thinking about some words that Paul writes, powerful words in Philippians chapter 3, because I think this sums up Paul's attitude to his life and to the privileges that he experienced. Philippians 3 and verse 4, he says, If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I have far more I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is found in the law, found blameless. And then he says these incredible things. He's listed all of the things that recommend him in his world, in his society, in his day. And then he says, but whatever things were gained to me, Those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You know, Paul is saying in those verses that he had died to his privileges, that he doesn't live according to them anymore. He doesn't put his faith in them anymore. And in that, he blazes a trail for everyone who wants to be a disciple of Jesus. He's saying to us, you know what? We take up our cross and we die daily. We don't present ourselves to the world and to one another and certainly not before God How could we, on the basis of whatever status or privilege our lives might have afforded us? We don't present ourselves on that basis. And you know, that might seem like a message that is really for the haves of this world rather than the have-nots. It might seem like a message for those with lots of privileges rather than none. And you know, there have been some amazing privileged people who have inspirationally sought to live out these words that Paul has said. And they've done it in different ways according to their own conscience. I remember a friend of mine that I was at university with um, who was born into a, a peerage in his family and he would have inherited a title of Lord and and been a member of the House of Lords and so on. But as a follower of Jesus, he decided that he was going to renounce that privilege and that title because he didn't want his life to be defined by that and by the things that came with it. And so he decided in his relationship before God that he was going to walk a different way. Or there's somebody like C.T. Studd, 
you know, an incredible hero of the 19th century who left his very wealthy family um, in England and his very revered role as the captain of the English cricket team. And he stepped out in faith to share the gospel in India and in China, in Africa. And he's credited of um, preaching and seeing many, many people come to faith um, in that place. There have been incredible people who have walked that path of laying down privilege for the sake of what they felt Jesus was asking them to do. But I remember, I was thinking kind of in contrast with that, so early days um, in New Life Congregation when we were replanting that congregation there, I remember trying to teach on this passage from Philippians 3 um, together with Abby. And um, it was a very mixed congregation, as most of them are. And we had a whole bunch of different sorts of people in the room that night. There were some real high flyers um, in the world's eyes. And then there were some right from the bottom rungs and the bottom edges um, of society. And as part of our response, as we were looking at this passage and as we were reading these verses, we'd encouraged people to write down a list of any achievements or commendations that they felt that they'd had um, in this world and in their lives, things the world would praise and value them for. And then we encouraged people to just write the word rubbish over it, right? Because um, that's what Paul says in some versions, that's what it translates. I count them all as rubbish. Now, I'm not saying that this was a brilliant idea (laughs) or even that it properly captures the heart of what Paul is saying in these verses. But what we were trying to do, we were trying to genuinely engage with the scriptures at a real life level and feel the impact of it in our actual lives. Do you hear what I'm saying? So we were trying to kind of get to that. And I remember that in that room, there were some people who really reacted. There were some who were weeping There were some who were angry, and there were some who were saying, you know, I've got no achievements to write down here, and therefore, basically, what I'm writing over this um, page is is just my life, my empty life, and then I'm saying it's rubbish, and that's how I feel about it anyway. I feel like my life is rubbish, and I feel like I'm just more worthless than I felt before, and there was a lot of this reaction in the room, and I remember it, it it was... hard but it was good it drove us to have some very real conversations together in that room that night to say but actually isn't that even that isn't that the point of what Paul's saying here it's not that Paul is trying to make you feel like rubbish it's definitely not that Jesus wants to make you feel like rubbish what it is it's that desire in us to have a page with a long list of those achievements on it That is what makes us feel rubbish. The desire to have the world acknowledge the things about us that the world thinks are good, that is what starts to erode us as human beings in our self-understanding and our self-worth. And what Paul was saying here was whether we have a page like that full of stuff or whether we don't, we are declaring that none of that is as important to us as getting hold of more of Jesus in my life. That is what comes first. That is where my worth and my value, my identity comes from. And that's got to be the bottom line of who I am. And once that foundation is in place in our lives, then Jesus, in all of his goodness and all of his graciousness, gives us privilege after privilege after privilege and blessing after blessing after blessing to enjoy and to use for him and for his glory. He gives us the privilege of fellowship like this. Do we see it as a privilege? 
that we can sit in a room like this and be loved by people who pray for us, who care about us, who come alongside us when they're not blood family and they don't have any other reason to care two hoots about what goes on in our lives, but they do because the love of God has gone inside them and the privilege of his spirit has been poured out into our lives to fill us and to bless us. The privilege of forgiveness in our lives when we don't deserve it. The privileges of his protection and his provision in many ways and sometimes even the privileges of success that can be measured and valued in this world and in our society, sometimes those too. And I just want to close by saying this. You know, following Jesus is not necessarily about giving up every blessing, every privilege, every achievement that we ever have in this life. And none of us would be able to do that anyway, fully, would we? Can't do it. It's about saying that those things don't matter to me as much as following Jesus. As much as getting closer to him. And if, at times, my walk with him leads me down a path where I have to give up some of those blessings and privileges, then I'm okay with that. And equally, if at times my walk with him takes me down a path where I can use and enjoy those privileges because they're part of God's purposes for me, then I'm okay with that. And that's just what Paul is doing here. He hadn't given up the privilege of that citizenship when he became a Christian. And at this moment, it was useful to him in the bigger purposes that God had for his life to get him to Rome. But equally, he wasn't living for those privileges. He was living for Jesus. And so as followers of Jesus, you know, maybe we just need to stop trying to find our value and our identity by looking at the list of privileges and achievements that we might have or that we could have had. And we've got to stop comparing ourselves with one another and judging the life that we have or that we haven't got as we walk with Jesus. We've got to start looking to Jesus and give ourselves wholly into his hands, first and foremost, and try to let him help us die to the desires for the world's commendations and do our best to follow the course he sets in front of us and live in a place of thankfulness and gratitude for the blessings and the privileges that we do enjoy. And we can gain huge inspiration from other people as they walk out their lives with Jesus, but they can never form the pattern for your life or mine. Your life with Jesus is completely unique Because you and your circumstances are completely unique. And exactly how Jesus uses them for his purposes, that's going to be between you and him. Paul was an extremely rare individual. It was very uncommon to find such an educated and intelligent and devout kind of Jew who was also a Roman citizen. But God used that unique background to use Paul in a special way and in just the same way he wants to use your unique background to use you in a special way, in a way that's going to bless you and that will bless others if we'll let him. So I'm going to pray. And let's pray together. Let's just be quiet before the Lord for a moment because there are a couple of things I just 
want to pray over us. And if you'll just open your heart to whichever is where you feel he's speaking to you. Lord, first of all, I just want to pray that your Holy Spirit would move and help us where there have been offenses, Lord, in our life together for whatever reason they've come. We don't want to damage one another. Thank you, Lord, that your blood forgives and heals. Please would you move in any heart or life where we need to receive that. Lord, I also want to pray about fear deep in the root of our lives, fears of losing what we have and the way that drives and controls us at times. Lord, please deliver your people from a spirit of fear. The blood of Jesus is here for that. We can trust you, Lord, to have our lives in your hands. And whatever we do or we don't get from this world, we have a Father in heaven who has it all and much more to give. Please help us to be at peace in that, to trust you. Deliver us from fear, we pray. And Lord, I want to pray for all of us that we can put you first and want you first. Lord, sometimes we do. We want other things in life, but we want to want you first. Help us with that, Lord. Help us where our priorities don't always look like that, Lord. We need your, your Holy Spirit. We need your Holy Spirit because we're, we're just ordinary people. Please help us to put you first and want you first and run for you first and reach for you first and live for you first above all else in this world. And Lord, finally, please help us as your people to stand together and to love one another and to receive one another on that common and level ground that comes from the cross of Christ. Whatever our background, our life, our experience, help us to stand Lord, on that common ground so that we can stand together and show the world a different kind of way. In Jesus' name.